to then say that I've just woke up one day and decided to be anti-trans. It's not what I'm about. What anti-trans is, is a modern day form of blasphemy, you know? You can't speak out against the church. And, you know, I'm an apostate now, which feels glorious. I'm Julie Bindle, and I'm talking to Richie, also known on Twitter as Tulip R. Richie is a detransitioning adult male from the northeast of England, my neck of the woods, and he advocates for better understanding and research into gender affirming care at home and abroad. I spotted Richie on Twitter, saw that our mutual friend Joe Rowling had supported him when he sent a series of devastating to read tweets about the hell he'd been through with transitioning, with undergoing sex change surgery. I refuse to use gender reassignment. You can't reassign a social construct and a set of sexist stereotypes that is gender by a surgeon's knife and hormones. But anyway, he'd been through sex change surgery, hormonal intervention, and it was not a good experience. Listen to Richie, and I'm sure you'll learn a huge amount about the problem with treating gender non-conforming young men and women in this way. Well, tell me about yourself, and I don't just mean your kind of whole trans experience, and but I want to know about you, about growing up. I mean, any detail that you want to include, but I'd yeah. like I'd like people to get to know you a little bit, Richie. Sure. Um, grew up in the northeast in a ex mining town. Um, I actually really love Northumberland. Um, I love nature. I love Scotland. Um, I love. I just love all the all the easy access to to nature that we have nearby. And growing up, I went on a lot of school trips to places like Rothbury and um, on the beaches, and I really really enjoyed it. And I do have a lot of fond memories for the the natural beauty but for me as somebody who was quite I was different I wasn't um I wasn't like a flamboyant kid because I I knew from looking at other flamboyant kids that that was not a good thing to be but I was definitely most certainly uh gay and growing up in that environment was really really uh difficult especially in the 90s when being gay was a headline but not in a good way um and it was it was very much passively talked about in like on tv and you know in local conversation family um it was just that like undertone homophobia not that not that like overt let's talk about how horrible gay people are it wasn't like that it was just a passive comment but it was enough to happen over time that i knew that that wasn't okay. What year were you so, born? I was born 1987. Yes, yeah, so because I was born 1962 and it was very overt, the anti-lesbianism and the anti-gay prejudice. It was very overt. But in some ways, it was easier to deal with than yeah. some of the stuff that's going on now. But anyway, um, I just wanted to locate you kind of generational-wise. So what, what age does that make you now? 35. 35, right, yeah. So there you were, growing up gay um, in the northeast. What kind of what kind of household? Working class, middle class? Yeah, well, my uh, dad was a miner. My mum was a child miner, but she also worked in uh, civil service too. And uh, it was little. Well, there's always been like a strong work ethic in our family. And after the mines closed, me uh, dad, who was an engineer by trade, um, 
got like gradually just better and better jobs so by the late 90s would kind of like cross that borderline between like working class and kind of emerging middle class as it were because we had uh, you know like by the time I was 10 there was like a five-bedroom house my dad and Mercedes that sort of thing and mm -hmm. in that area I was like it, you know it was regarded as um posh yeah <laughs> know what I mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh because I've always spoke a little bit differently anyway and um, not sure why I've always had like a little I've always had like a strange accent in the way like articulate myself totally different from people in Ashton um in Northumberland which is a very very difficult area and uh I just sound like I'm not from there but I am obviously and uh and I think a lot of the, especially as I got to me teenage years, the other kids saw me as more of an outsider than I was because right. I, you know, me, me family had went from, you know, when I was very little, we could barely afford like wallpaper and stuff like the really, really, really struggled. Like, so it wasn't as if we were like born in the money or anything like that. Yeah. Um, both my parents worked really hard to to get where we are, uh, where they got to. And uh, yeah, and then I think that added a layer of difference because a lot of my friends in school were kind of still working class families, whereas mine was kind of getting to that middle class level. Um, me mom and dad wanted us to put us in uh, like some sort of private school when I was like 12 or 13 but I was like no I don't want to do that I would kind of wish they did really though that probably would have been better for us but um but also I was wickedly smart I say I was I am wickedly smart um very witty um extremely observant uh generous um but also really creative and a little bit chaotic uh I think in another life I probably would have made a good comedian or something like that. You know what I mean? So how did it manifest itself the way that you were at school so bright, but you stood out from the other kids? Did you find that you were on your own a lot or did you create a, a new persona for yourself to hide behind? I was, I was very much like a chameleon um, and I could quite blend in quite easily with with people but that meant that I would go through a lot of different friend groups too um I did have some consistent friends growing up like throughout but I did find myself hanging around with with different groups when uh but I was also really anxious and really depressed and I think it was quite hard work for other kids to be around too um because I wasn't always like happy and bubbly you know um but I wasn't like miserable and or anything like that I was just conflicted she would say um as a child like especially around the age 11 12 I uh, became extremely obsessed with pyromancy and like really really wanted like fires all the time so mm -hmm. that became an obsession so I used to me and my friends used to burn whatever we could um loved certain fires and um uh, still a little bit obsessed I'm not a pyromaniac by the way but I am still a little bit like you know it's the whole it draws you in and I can see why it does that because it's all about like um control and stuff like that um but 
but it it makes sense looking back but that that was a why does it make sense how does it make sense to you now because I feel like I was very much I knew I, I felt out of control with my anxiety um I felt out of control with who I was turning out to be um and by burning and destroying and all that sort of thing you you get a sense of control um and I can see that retrospectively. I've worked with a number, a number of women in prison who um, had awful childhoods with abuse and chaos and neglect that went on to commit low-level crimes like setting their waste paper bin in their hostel room on fire, that kind of thing. Fire was very predominant for many of these women that they'd, they'd set, set off low-level fires that wouldn't harm anyone or escalate, although I know fires are a risk, but ended up in prison on um, indeterminate sentences for that, some of them in for a long, long time. So fire is its something that is a thread that runs through lots of um, the lives of lots of people who've been damaged through abuse or neglect or bullying or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, again, I don't want to discredit me family too much but me my mom and dad were were trying the best to maintain like um the family as it were but they weren't they weren't happy in their own relationship there was a lot of issues there um and as best as they could try and stay together for the kids and you know not bring it in it, it would bleed in um you know arguments and uh, just things like that but it was it, it you know and I, I felt like me me parents weren't together much they were all doing their own thing a lot uh quite naturally so um that that and school and also I was very short and I didn't really hit probably hit puberty till I was about 15 right <laughs> so um I withdrew a lot and found the computer and then I would later find the internet and that became all my obsession and I kind of stopped being bright and articulating at school and applied that to the internet um, which my dad would be like you're wasting your bloody life on that computer and all this sort of thing. So basically but... you would withdraw from one-to-one exchanges between friends or family and you would just delve into whatever you could find on the web that gave you comfort or familiarity or something well initially I didn't have the internet at first I'd, I'd been on the internet with a few friends and stuff and I was obsessed with chat rooms from about the age of eight and nine which is so dangerous um and that does feature in my own story but uh, when we got our own computer for me it was the um the old encyclopedia I think it was called uh Britannica Antarctica or something like that and I just used to print loads of pages off from that. And uh, and then I discovered strategy games, um, like turn-based strategy games, like very, very early games for the PC. And that took a lot of me time. And then we got the internet when I was about 11-ish. And then it just went to hell from there. Um, that's when things got really, really bad, especially up the obsession and uh, the chat rooms. And uh, the internet was a very di- different and far more dangerous place than I think it's dangerous now in its own ways especially with like the access with like TikTok influence and stuff like that but um back then it was just totally was wild west nobody knew what it was capable of parents had no chance and um these chat rooms is that where you first met 
the trans issue. No, I just meant like all the guys on there at first. I didn't really encounter the trans stuff until my early 20s online. So when you say you met older guys with these predatory Adults. older men looking for young yeah. boys? Absolutely, 100%. So what happened? I would, at first, when I was about eight or nine, um, me and my friend would, at the, at his house, we would give our number on the chat rooms and just be like, we want to speak to people from all over the world sort of thing. So they would ring and uh, would obviously talk to pedophiles, wouldn't we? And uh, and then, you know, we're, we're backtracked from that. I don't know what happened to him in private, but there was definitely something with him that, that changed over time. And I don't know. But for me, on my own journey, when I was about 11, 12, and I started going into these chat rooms, it, originally it was for the same purpose. And I would always try and pretend I was... Um, an adult at first but they could just tell that I wasn't an adult do you know what I mean Um, and I I felt like I could all escape from those scenarios and then what happened is that like the online handles and identities through MSN, ICQ, IRC, later Skype um, and all that sort of thing would come in and when I had a handle or an identity and I was normally given them that information that's when like the the constant contact would come in so it was like I don't know I was, I was talking to them um I would try and get away from them at times and there were there was periods when I wasn't interacting at all and there was a new set but I would always fall into the same traps because online there was also a lot of older guys who were very sort of supportive and role modelly, like because they were they were gamers and they had no interest in because in they just wanted to play games as most you do. So, mm-hmm. and me, I was that young kid whose voice hadn't broken, who swore, who was really funny, you know? Mm-hmm. That's, I was like, but when it when it came to like, if the adults were in the room having a conversation, it would be like, fuck off, Richie, you know? You, right. you need to leave at this point. But I'd assume that everyone was like that online because of those experiences. And that's what led us into that false sense of security, giving away me stuff. It wasn't, people don't, it, you don't just go into a chat room and say hello and then something bad happens. It's it's a grooming process. It's a trust yeah. process. And all they had to do with me was talk about games, like the games I was playing. Because on the games like Diablo, Diablo 1, 2, um, Starcraft, Warcraft, uh, Unreal Tournament, these all came with chat rooms. So the interest was like implied. And uh, that's when it would, like, come f- off there onto, like, oh, a private situation. Mm-hmm. And you would, you know, add very low self-esteem as well. Um, I wasn't sure what was happening. So it would be, like, I really, really felt like I was really ugly too. And then they convinced us to get a webcam. And then I took a picture. And then it just escalated from there. And mm-hmm. then it just got into a, you know, I was, I was interacting in exploring myself which I thought felt was liberating at the time but who I was doing it with is actually really really disgusting because I wasn't doing it with my peer group I was doing it with adults and um I I do often wonder because there was a lot of different times that I did that um if there's content of me online today I don't know you know um I hope not I hope none of that but you know 
Um, that didn't that ended when I was about 16. Um, when I just kind of just stopped because I think also yeah, I was very, very depressed and I'd kind of fallen out of the the target group as well, but I was also really addicted to that attention too. So in other words, you become 16, you've gone through puberty. So those men that wanted prepubescent boys to sexually exploit were yeah. moving on to younger kids. Yeah, and by this time, your self-esteem was destroyed and I didn't want to have anything to do with sex. Um, I was also kind of like, at times I was cross-dressing when I could. I was, just, I was five years older and moved out. Um, and I know that's really like a fucked up thing to use sisters' clothes and shit, but I did do that. Um, I do feel wrong about that, but what because you were cross dressing, yeah, I do because it was like taking their property as well. I wasn't like I wasn't sexually fueled, I would just sit there for hours just doing whatever. But I had a lot of time alone from 15 to 17 as well because my parents did eventually split up and um. I, my mum had to leave the house because it, it was a very, very intense scenario. And uh, my dad was just kind of semi there most days. And I was just on my own a lot. And I took advantage of that. Yeah. And I would just sit, watch something or play a game or whatever. Um, the it, it did turn into a sexual element, definitely, as I got older. But that was like, that's not how it started for me at mm. all. Um, and I think there's still a great deal of shame in even talking about that because people recoil at that thought and the link you're like obviously all like predatorial people and stuff and that's what you think you are and all that shit but anyway the online stuff by by that point because of various other things because I was having a terrible time at school and on the internet in general I just kind of became and I was had an eating disorder at this point too and it became just getting fatter and fatter and I just became completely no sex for me I'm done with sex hate the idea of sex I'm really bad OCD too um, yeah. lots of intrusive thoughts uh, lots of ruminations lots of obsessions and I just like I just wanted to switch off so I found World of Warcraft when I was 17 And what's that? Can you explain what that is? That's a massively multiplayer online game where you where I wasted seven years of my life playing. But you know what? It, it kept us going. I had structure. I learned leadership because you had to coordinate with lots of other people. You had to plan things. You had to manage intense like conflicts of personality. Um, it was... It was the beginning of my journey into becoming like a natural leader because I do feel like I am a natural leader anyway. Um, and that was like my training, as it were. Um, and although I did spend a lot of hours there, but and I did get very, very fat because I was just playing and drinking six cans of Dr. Pepper a day, you know what I mean? And uh, but it kept us kept us through. 
And uh, by that point, I'd stopped cross-dressing completely because I was so fat. And I was just like, there's no fucking way. Like, I would want... I'd, I felt hideous about myself anyway. And then I moved out at about 23, 24. Lived with a friend for um, a year or so. And then he moved out and I was by myself. And by that time, I'd lost weight. And then I'd discovered the trans shit online because I was trying to reconcile everything in my life. And... And I was like, why was I, why did I want to be a ballerina at the age of seven? Why did I want to role play the teacher at five? Why did I want to um, play with pop-up kitchens and stuff when I was four? Could it not just be because kids like to play with other things? But for me, it was like, oh, I'm trans. This is, this is all because of this trans thing. And did and it feel like almost, like... did it feel almost like a relief that you could finally yeah. pinpoint every single problem you'd had in your life to the fact yeah. that you were trapped in the wrong body? Absolutely. Yeah. It was just like, oh, everything, all of a sudden, that weight, that burden, that self-blame, all off its trans. It's, it's like, oh, oh, it all makes sense now. Everything makes sense. This is why I'm an alien. This is why I don't feel right at my body. Nothing to do with the fact that I was kind of degrading myself from an early age online, knowingly. Um, nothing to do with the fact that I was dealing with difficult situations in life at school and, and at home, wherever, you know. It was nothing to do with the fact that I had crippling OCD and an obsessive nature and traits of ADHD, autism, ADHD, sorry. Um it was nothing to do with that. It was all because I was trans. I was stuck in the wrong body, of course. Yeah. And presumably there was a welcoming welcoming community uh, there ready to embrace you. Not just that, but I'd also had the predisposition to get that sort of dopamine rush from sharing stuff. So when I'd gave them, told them everything why I thought I was trans... It was like instant, yeah, you're trans, this is why. And if I was doing it your age, um, you would be a fool not to do it. And then I started sharing me pictures. Um, I've always, I don't have like any like um, hormonal issues. I've just always had a very sort of, I don't know, uh, this face, if that makes sense. <laughs> and um, so soon as I started sharing pictures, it was just like, oh my God, even cis men, as they would say, even cis men are going to love you and all this shit, which is a terrible thing to say to me. Um, why is it terrible? And, Explain why it's terrible. They just they just praised and praised us. And then um, off that forum, I would later eventually end up meeting some of them in real life. And they were all like mid-50s, very heavily sexually fueled. There was a grooming situation with one of them. Trans um, women, so men identifying as trans. Uh, I wouldn't call them trans women. So men who were into the trans kink or? Yeah, I would say it was more kink oriented. It wasn't, I didn't go there for the kink, but their motivations were most definitely kink orientated. They had came with the premise that they were trans, but they were so heavily sexually fueled. Like, you know, the the... The six foot three, the wearing six inch heels and black leather pants, breast forms, and and you know, and they're just being really, really cringy. And and did know. you meet them face to face? Was this a yeah. physical meeting? Where did you meet them? Um, one of them organised a dinner at a local thing for a bunch of them, and I'd met them there, 
And then from that, she had came to my house a few times. She was like 34 years old only. And then I had very low self-esteem, very early transition. And I was just like, oh, you know, this is what you do. You need to get like a sort of a, a trans mentor thing. And she says, I'll take you, I'll take you out for, for dinner to boost your self-esteem, right? And I was like, okay, then I'm earning like very low income at the time. And uh, I was just like, yeah, hell yeah, I'll, I'll have a free meal. And uh, she picked us up um, one, like a few evenings later and about halfway to the restaurant in the car, keep in mind she was like, I say she, he, I was like six foot four, right? And just goes, oh, it's not often you get to take a young, sexy girl out on a date. And I just shut down. I was like, fuck. And then we're in the restaurant. It was really awkward, really cringy. And she was just, she was just like making advances and stuff like that. And I didn't want any of it. And I just wanted to, to get home. And, uh, but I was away, I had no money. I was, she, she drove purposely miles away, trying to apply us with alcohol and all sorts. But I kind of realized what was happening and only had one drink. Cause I was nervous. I was like, I need a drink, but I'm not getting drunk. And, um, and then on the way home, should should kind of knew that someone was off with us because I was like no communication. I was just totally shut down. Like, and then I just got out of the car and I and I distanced myself. And then later on, I would move a few months later, about two months later, I moved in with a different trans friend who didn't really believe what I was saying about this person. And she had invited this person over to the house that I was now living at. And this is like six weeks later. And I, she knew that she was had, she had no goal with me, but my friend, she would, um, I didn't want anything to do with them. So I was in my room and they were in the living room. And I would come in occasionally just to check in on my friend, basically left alone with this person. I protested. I didn't want them there, but I couldn't stop them because she wanted the benefit of the doubt and all that sort of thing. And then uh, I would go back in the room to find that she would just be, my friend would be sobbing. And this person had like purposely talked about something that was really, really hurtful to get her vulnerable so she could hold her hand and like try and comfort her. But she'd also said she would bring like dinner, but she brought like three bottles of spirits, some like spaghetti and oil or something. It was really fucking weird. And she was trying to get me, me friend drunk. And I kept coming in. I wasn't like, I wasn't sure. I was, I was like, I don't like what's going on here. And, um, I'm back in my room and she, re she, she was trying to get me friend a proposition to go to sleep with her. But I basically told her she needs to fuck off. And she was like, I can't, I'm drunk. I can't drive. And I was like, well, stay in this room. And then after that, we didn't see them again. And there was like, she did, um, she did kiss me friend on the back of her neck, like unwantedly. It was really awful, like cringy. Horrible. But anyway, it was like, that person has done a lot. This person goes around the community and they always lay on young, vulnerable transitioners. And the thing that I talk about often is there is a big vulnerable group that gets overlooked in this whole discourse, which is young males from teenagers to young adults who are the main target of these people. Like sometimes it's women, but it is largely young male, young male transitioners. So basically what we've got here is an opportunity for men who 
pass themselves off as transgender or they're opportunistic in whatever way, for mm. whom it might be a kink or whatever, and they hone in on those that are going through an extremely vulnerable process. Yeah. And you were one of those young men, extremely yeah. vulnerable to this. And, and what always surprises me, so as someone who grew up in a similar community to you, albeit 25 years before you, that, that at that stage there were, of course, predatory men who were hitting on young gay men, homeless men, railroading them into pornography, railroading them into prostitution because they um, they knew that this was a community that very few would care about outside of their families and even maybe not them. And so in, in those days, gay men who were predatory would say, how dare you accuse us of these crimes? It's just homophobia. But we yeah. weren't saying they were doing it because they were gay. We were saying they were doing it because they wanted vulnerable young men, because that was their sexual taste, and that this was a group that were marginalised and therefore seen as less worthy than other young men. I mean, is that... Here we are, all those years, another generation on, more, and it's it's the same shit, different excuse, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and you rope them into OnlyFans, you rope them into, um, like, there's this obsession in the trans community with sex work, as they say. Uh, they use that word, that term, sex work. Um, oh, of course they do. Yeah. I mean, of course they use the term sex work, because for them, it's a job like any other. They want to remove the um, the reality from it. The, it's It's very much a the word it's dressed up you know it, it, it's it's made out to be this like liberating sort of height of femininity and all this sort of thing but it's not it doesn't serve anyone but men at the end of the day and um a lot of trans people egg a lot of other trans people on to do that sort of thing but we also find ourselves in those scenarios where we have kind of got that predisposition to learn for attention that like you need to go to certain places like certain websites like tv chicks and put up your profile and um and get that attention because some of us are attention starved too and there is a lot of like cluster b like uh personality traits too such as narcissism you know and you well i mean I, you know i've um i've seen for a long time since since the uh, trans activists started coming after me in, after 2004, I've seen how gradually it became the same group of people using the same arguments that yeah. came after me and other women who critique the sex trade, who wish to abolish prostitution, that see it as abuse that primarily men cause, um, or primarily that men um, uh, use against women, but also vulnerable young men. And and it is the same kind of crowd with the same justifications. And what you've just done is you've given me a scenario that makes absolute sense where it's about the railroading or grooming of young trans-identified men into selling sex. Gay men. Yeah. That young, 
gay men who are also additionally maybe caught up in the trans identity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think it also. I've got some friends who are who are bisexual in the, in the detrans males group, and some are straight, and some of them have even ended up having sexual interactions with older trans uh, women and. A lot of it has been done when they didn't really want to, too. There was a lot, like a lot of, you know, it is, it, it is very difficult when you, when you're vulnerable anyway. And it's like, I don't know, it's, it's that whole sort of a 50 year old leering on a 16, a 25 year old. Is that, is that okay? I'd, it might be illegal, but morally, I think it's not, you know, uh, and I know many people might give a shit for that, but I think it's, I think. Not, I don't think it should be outlawed, but I think it should be questioned. And also, I mean, there's there's no two ways about it that some of these trans-identified males, the older predatory ones, will be committing actual crimes against other vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. And, and just because, you know, they might choose those that are of age, of the age of consent, doesn't mean that they're not committing crimes. Oh, so here's the other thing. when When a male takes oestrogen... The skin softens, the, like they lose a lot of hair, and then they take on like a more androgynous sort of vibe, especially when the when they're blocked. And to them, it's not about they're not playing it along like with the person who thinks, oh, they see me as a woman. They don't see you as a woman, they see you as a younger male, which is what they are appealed with. With that femininity, it's got nothing to do with them thinking you're actually a woman. But so people like me who go for that attention, like in the early days, it would be like, um, oh, people think I'm I'm like a woman. That's great. That's like positive attention. But that's not what they're seeing. They're seeing a young feminine male and it's hitting their sexual interests massively. Yeah. And I spoke to some um, young women that have detransitioned from being from living as trans men and what some of those young women have told me is that when they were identifying as trans men and older gay men would lure them into sexual relationships, their words, not mine, absolutely groomed into being with these older gay men, that these 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 trans boys actually looked like boys. They do. They look like kids. And that's something that we we don't talk about. Why is it that men, some men, predatory men, want to have sex with either males or females, however they identify, that look very young, often prepubescent. Yeah. And I mean, when I was like 27, 28, like even with like the anti-androgens, I looked even younger than I do now. And I mean, I'm 35 now and I'm like, I think I passed for about mid-20s, you know what I mean? Um, But like even then it was, it was, I don't know, it, it's sinister, um, but you can't say that without being transphobic. Look, we've we've seen you articulate your story. You've told it to Sanchez Manning, a great, a great colleague of mine. It's there, thankfully, now for the world to see, although it must have been difficult for you to tell that story. So I'm not going to ask you to go through the same detail that you have told repeatedly. That has, thankfully, got a lot of traction, including from our friend, Joe Rowling, um, brilliant, brilliant supporter and brilliant woman. But what I'd like to do is ask you now um, how you're coping with life, how you are dealing with 
being detransitioned but also fucked around by the medical profession and those you're hoping to hold to account and what you hope to see in the future and how we can help with that. So I think there's a long road ahead. How I'm coping, um, I have an obsessive nature. Um, this is, to me, um, in a way, like everything I'm doing, it is another form of an obsession. However, it is a constructive obsession. If you're going to be obsessed about something uh, and do that obsessively, then why not this? I feel like it it matches how I feel inside and the, the moral side too. But I am also aware that when I do stop and I do try and like take in what I'm saying, what I'm writing, what I'm talking about, it, it can be quite crushing, to be honest, because like I think I do very well to dissociate myself even now from the things I'm saying. And I think that's one of the reasons why I can articulate myself quite well, because there's that degree of intellectual separation. And when I do feel it can be very difficult because what else can you do but kind of crumble in, in on yourself and uh, you've got to do your best to keep yourself mentally healthy. But I'm not going to lie, it's not fucking easy. And uh, the medical professions, I, I knew this would happen, but I want the world to see. This, everything that I'm talking about, everything that I tweet about, isn't, I know it's not a surprise to you. I know it's not a surprise to me. But for the people looking inwards who are detached from this, it's a surprise to them. So what I've noticed is, I'll, like, I'll write something. And the reason that I'm writing or tweeting a certain status about something that's happened in detransition isn't because I'm going, I can't believe this is happening. I can believe it. I understand it. And so can you. But can the people on the outside? That's what I'm about. It's about bringing those outside eyes in. And uh, I think uh, I have been fortunate enough to contribute to that, along with everyone else, to, to bring the majority, as many people as I can, from the outside. How have you coped with the hostility that you've had? And who have you had it from? Because there must be some very, very nervous trans advocates, very uncomfortable um, gender extremists that hate what you're doing. Yeah, they do, because their narrative falls apart because it's all about acceptance and saying that you didn't blend in and stuff and that you you, you detransitioned because you couldn't pass. And I'm like, even now, people can't even get me fucking pronouns right. Not that I care about pronouns, Julie, but you know what I mean? And it's just like, when they see me, it's like the kind of say, hang on, you, why, why are you doing this? You, you look feminine and you could easily like blend in. You, you, and, and I think it's that sort of betrayal because a lot of them see it as like, what you're doing but what I've noticed with detrans males specifically is a great vast majority of them blended in very well and still do and I think that has like part of the whole waking up process because you've not only the the dragon that you're chasing you you've you've caught at some point and you're like is this it? This is shit, actually. Um, so when you blend in and you are seen as a woman, you pass as a woman, you're not misgendered, all of that works perfectly well, which is what um, is supposed to be the ultimate 
positive experience. That's the dragon that you've caught. Is that right? Yeah. And when you catch it, it's like, you don't feel this euphoria. You feel like, well, this is fuck. I, I, I got told that this is what I needed to achieve to be happy. And now I'm here. I'm just like, well, I suppose maybe it's because I need a little bit more like surgeries. Maybe I need to get FFS. Facial feminization surgery. That's yeah. right. Maybe I need to get breast augmentation. Maybe I need to get a Brazilian liposuction to shape my body a bit more feminine. It never fucking ends. So the future is about you re-establishing yourself as the person that you should have been growing into prior to all of this transition yeah. uh, stuff. And, and how is that going to work for you moving forward and what support do you need? So the problem I have is the medical bit because... The medical solution in their eyes is, oh, we can just get you back to the gender clinic and change your hormones and get you for top surgery to get rid of the, the breasts that have grown. And if you want to phalloplasty even, and I'm like, fuck that. No, I'm not interested in any more hormones or scalpels. I want to be healthy. Ideally, Julie, I would like to find an alternative to estrogen and testosterone. I would like to find something that does just does the bone health because that it seems to me from the research that I've done that even though the um, eunuchs live 15 years to 20 years on average longer um there was a study on uh, South Korean eunuchs done in 2021 um they all have osteopia osteoporosis um and I feel like there must be a way to avoid that without taking hormones I don't want to masculinize again like I still haven't escaped from that like internalized fear you know what I mean I don't want to I don't want a beard I don't want body hair again I don't want any of that but I don't want to continue female hormones when right. I know that's not good for me I know right. it's not good for my body I've got no energy and shit it's fucking us up like emotionally it's like a very like it's like a light feeling when you're on estrogen. It's because it increases your serotonin production in your gut. So you're, you're naturally like, ah, oh, you know, as Husky uh, said to me, like, because why does Zoom call? I love Husky. He's such a cool dude. Who's Husky? Just, Husky, uh, I think it's Hogworth. He's like a male detransitioner. And anyway, it was just basically explained to me, like, you know, that feeling of estrogen, it's like this sort of airy, fairy in the feeling you know and, and that's literally what it is it's very pacifying it makes you calm and I wonder if that has got a link to the because you know how there's an overlap with autism and gender dysphoria that calm feeling the fact that it increases the serotonin it has to be linked and it has to be because that it gives you a false positive so it's like I feel better because of the estrogen so it must have been this all along it's but what's actually happened to you is you've been given a modern form of Valium, basically. And so are you going to sue the medical practitioners that sent you down this path? Certainly trying. <laughs> so we can help with that? We can help crowdfund and get you support? Provisionally at the moment, um, me uh, solicitor took on a like oh god I can't remember what it was called conditional fee arrangement or something mm -hmm. where, yeah. like like pro bono basically mm -hmm. but 
depending on other things coming up, it could be that they might not able to maintain that and in the future I may have to do to do one. Um, personally, I would like to do everything within my power to avoid doing any sort of fundraising whatsoever because I'm not in this for the money. I need. I'm trying to try to tell people I'm not in it for the money. But um, you need to pay your legal bills, though. I mean, that's not going into your pocket. That's true. And if that happens, I I, I will take up that very kind offer. But um, I'm. I just want people to know I'm like I'm not. I'm not doing this thieves. I'm not doing this to. But I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Richie, I think bearing in mind how many years of suffering that you've had to endure and loss of earnings and everything that comes with that, you should be entitled to huge amounts of compensation. I don't think that you need to apologise for taking a case or cases against those that have caused you direct harm. Let's see, Julia. Thank you. That was Richie. I'm sure you learnt a lot from hearing him. And I personally hope that he writes a book. I think we need that book. I think that all gender non-conforming young people need to read a book by Richie. So I hope we'll be hearing much more from him. Thank you for listening. <laughs>